Kathy and I are going to celebrate our 36th wedding anniversary a little later this summer, June 5th, 1980. One of the reasons it's easy to remember, for some of you who are as old as we are, it was ridiculously hot that summer. It was 105 the day we got married. I think we had like 11 days in a row. It was over 100 degrees. So my memories of getting married are that it was a hot, hot time. Kind of a Johnny Cash song, isn't it? We got married in a fever or something like that. How's that an an introduction? Yeah. Anyway, along with anniversaries, uh, Kathy and I typically two times a year end up, mostly intentionally, sometimes it just happens, but but around anniversaries and around the end of the year, uh, the key times, key points on the calendar, we'll end up talking about how are we doing in our marriage, in the family, in life. Uh, what are we doing well? What do we need to change doing? Um, big picture, too, we've said things like, if we were to live life over, what would we do different? What would we change? From you know, hindsight, from this point in life, looking back, what would have made life more successful? What would we change if we could? The thing that kept coming up in maybe the last 10 or 15 years, not necessarily the early ones, was this, we've, we've consistently said uh, there's not very many things in our life that we would have changed, but we would change this. We would worry less and we would enjoy more. We would worry less and we would enjoy more. And usually the worry was tied to money, to finances. So uh, Kathy and I would tell you probably at any point, we were living our dream. But for most of our married life, finances were very slender. So we certainly, we always paid our bills. We never missed a payment. We never missed a meal. We always had transportation. We always had a roof over our head. But there simply was nothing extra. Our, our daughters had a dog one time. We couldn't afford to feed the dog. We gave the dog away because we couldn't afford dog food. That's, that's how tight finances were. We drove cars that uh, if I could have, I would have parked a block away from wherever we were going so that people didn't see what we had driven up in. They, re- they weren't even roadworthy, but they were given to us. They were gifts, so that's what we drove. We didn't have the money to buy another car. So we had marvelous help, by the way, just in the churches and the Christian fellowship we've had in the past. We've just had so many people who loved other brothers and sisters who would just take care of each other. And we saw a lot of that. But it was that whole thing that in the midst of life, there was this, for me especially, probably more than Kath, there was this undercurrent of anxiety because I wish things were different than they are. I wish I had more money than we have. I wish we had more options. And we're going to be talking about money this morning, if you can't tell where this is headed. And there's certainly there's an appropriate sense. God's very gracious. He gives us all kinds of things to enjoy. We'll talk about that too. But I I would get stuck on this reef of anxiety that we're just subsisting. We're just getting the bills paid. And it sort of felt like financially being anemic. You'd like to do more, you just, you can't. You're you're stuck here. I've got this level of health. These are the things I could do. In the same moments, it's like, Lord, you've blessed us with so much. We are living our dream. We love each other. We're having kids. We love our kids. We're invested in the church. And life is good. I got this thing that tugs at me that I got to work at. This morning, if you look at your life and just take a breath and let it out, 
I look at my life right now. If you said on the scale of 1 to 10, how content am I? Scale of 1 to 10. And thinking here specifically, particularly about finances and the stuff of life, what I've got, my lifestyle, etc. How content am I today on a scale of 1 to 10? What does that look like? And then also, related to some sense of well-being on finances and, and lifestyle, how much stuff is enough to be happy? How much stuff? Or maybe we'd say, what kind of stuff? How much and what kind of stuff is enough for us to be happy? Charles Spurgeon made quite a bit of money uh, as a pastor because he sold pamphlets. And he used that in great, marvelous ways. But a guy that had a lot said this about income and happiness. He said, it's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. That sense of well-being, that life as it is, is good. That I'm content with it as it is. So guys, for us this morning, just going in, just thinking, just sowing some seeds as we go into the text this morning. How much are you and I enjoying life right now? And how content are we? in our current circumstances. And as we think about finances or perhaps other circumstances for us, do the circumstances of life determine how we're doing, how we see things? Or are we, are we being informed from internally from the Spirit of God, from the truth of God's Word, so that we're interpreting our circumstances from God's perspective? We're not blown about by circumstances, but we see them coming through God's hands from God's perspective. How are we doing with that? We're in the second to last in the God's House series, working through the epistle of 1 Timothy. And in case you missed any of the previous ones, this is just Paul writing to his protege, younger brother in the faith, Timothy, who's representing Paul and God's interest at the church in Ephesus. And he's framed everything he's talked about by saying in chapter 3 that the church, the church of Jesus Christ is God's house. It's his household. It's the place he lives that we collectively are God's house, as well as his children. We're the place he hangs out. And he wants those in his household who are his household to represent him and his things and his priorities as he sees it, not necessarily as we do. And he's talked about that in a number of different ways. This morning he brings up the whole issue of finances, of money. In God's house, how do we see finances? And particularly what's going on here, what's driving the initial part of this is this. There are teachers, there are leaders in the church of Ephesus who are in it for the money. They believe this comes up in the the framework of the language, godliness is a means of gain. That in God's house I can use God and God's children so that I can get more money. So that I can gain more wealth. Godliness is so I get more money stuff. That's the primary thing he's dealing with this morning. So we're going to be in chapter 6. For reference, we'll start in the last half of verse 2, read through verse 5, and then we're really going to park in verses 6 through 10, and then a little bit after that in verses 17 through 19. So starting 1 Timothy 6, second half of verse 2, Paul wrote, teach and urge these things. And these things were the way they were treating each other in the household of faith. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, 
He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And out of that kind of mindset, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. That godliness, my position in the household of faith, is about me getting more stuff, more money and more stuff. Verse 6, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. That word means a sense of sufficiency. I don't need, I don't have to have anything else. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. I come with nothing, I leave with nothing. The stuff in between can't define who and what I am, because I came with nothing and I leave with nothing. Verse 9, but... Uh, can I take it? Sorry, verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And it means a sense of adequacy or sufficiency. Those who desire to be rich, and desire there's a strong word, I've set my heart on this. I have purposed this. This is my goal. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires, that word translated elsewhere, lusts, that plunge people, see them falling head, head first, plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So in this first section, Paul's addressing leaders in the church and their view of godliness is that my position in the church is the means by which I gain the material wealth of the world. I use God and I use His household, brothers and sisters in the faith, to get more stuff. In fact, if you compare this to chapter 1, there were guys there that said, we want to teach the law. And Paul said, well, you don't understand the law, and so you're not teaching appropriately. That same group or guys like them are here. They say, well, we want to be godly. And to them it means, being godly means I get more wealth. And Paul says, no, 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 you've missed the mark again. Look at verse 9 for a second. Paul says of this group that they have become senseless. They are without comprehension. They have lost their minds and they have lost their way because they've set their heart on worldly wealth. They no longer comprehend the way things are. Their, their minds aren't right because their hearts aren't right. It, he says they are plunging into ruin and destruction. So they've made wealth their goal and it's like taking chains wrapping them around themselves, heavy chains, and jumping into the sea. Where are they going to go? There's only one way. They are going down. They are plunging headlong into destruction. Look at verse 10. It says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And guys, I hope you know, if you think back to the creation account, when God made the world and everything in it, He said everything is very good. When we say there's a problem with something... 
Stuff is not the problem. Stuff is never the problem. Everything God created is good. We're the problem. Our hearts are the problem. Our attitude toward stuff is the problem. So what these guys are doing is they're elevating material wealth and the things that wealth provides, of course, that sense of perhaps satisfaction, pride, I have social standing, over God and their brothers and sisters in the faith. That's what's going on. This is idolatry. It's just a form of idolatry. Something has taken God's place. Something is between me and God, or something is over God in my estimation. So for these guys, God, godliness, and the brothers and sisters in the faith are there so I can get more money. You're here for me. You're here so I can get more stuff. That's the attitude. He says of this, this craving leads them to pierce themselves with many pangs. The language here, it's all, it's all meant to be visual, isn't it? So that we can see it. They're, it's like taking a sword that's deeper than their body and they're stabbing themselves through with their sword. They're piercing themselves right on through their own body. Metaphorically, it means to torture their own soul. So I set up in my mind, I've got to have more money. Money is going to define who I am and my value and my lifestyle. And by doing that, he says, I am in fact torturing, piercing my own soul through with that desire. There's a similar passage in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, where he says, Peter says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That when we set our minds in a way on something God doesn't mean us to have or doesn't mean us to elevate to that status, Peter says we've created warfare in our own soul. You won't get peace. You know, in all of this, you might get a pleasure in the moment. You might have the money to do something that you enjoy in the moment. But whether it's money or any of the other things that we can abuse, there may be a pleasure to be had, but it's at the cost of an ongoing strife and warfare in my own psyche, in my own mind, in my own heart, in my own emotions. So this desire to be rich as a form of godliness, Paul says, it takes you absolutely down and nowhere. Think of this too. You remember when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And so Jesus says, okay, here's a model. You can follow this model when you pray. And first he talks about putting God and God's things first. And towards the tail end of that short model prayer, he says, and pray this, lead us not into temptation. Lord, would you keep us from those situations, people, and scenarios in which you know I'm liable to sin? Would you keep me away from those areas I would sin? Keep me out of temptation. But Paul says here, when I make wealth my goal, I've already landed squarely on the path of temptation. I'm living in the place of temptation. I am going to sin. It won't do, will it? To pray to God on one hand, keep me from temptation, and choose to live in the place of temptation. But that's exactly what's going on here. There's also another passage in 2 Timothy 3. Read that list later. There's about 19 descriptions of what ungodly people in the last days, which we are in, look like. And it says, among other things, they are lovers of self, they're proud, they're arrogant, and the list just gets worse and worse. 
And in that list, it says they are lovers of money. These ungodly people, Paul's describing in 2 Timothy, they love money. They're like the leaders in the church at Ephesus. Uh, Many years ago, Kath and I were at a conference. Actually, it was in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, Keith Green, if you remember him, had died in a plane wreck. And there were a number of fundraising conferences, concerts that were being held around the country after that. And we were at one in Manhattan, and there was a couple, delightful couple, about 10 years our senior or so, whose job it was to go around and raise support for indigenous uh, native missionaries in the 1040 window. And so we were talking with them. And they were telling us about a group of American pastors from the Midwest, from our backyard, who'd gone to India to encourage the pastors there. And this is what they told them. God's will for your life is health and wealth. They literally told these Indian pastors that God meant for them to be driving Cadillacs. I don't know if Cadillacs sold Cadillacs in India then or not. But the, the woman of this couple we were engaged with uh, says, the Asians are always very polite. She said, but after the conversation ended, they told, the Indian pastors told this American couple, uh, we must pray for our brothers in America. Because they got this. They understood First Timothy. They've set their hearts on wealth. They're losing their minds. And she also said the pastors they were telling this to had literally sold the shoes off their feet to buy gospel tracts for distribution in a place in the world in which most folks had never heard the name of Jesus. But these guys are coming from America saying God's will, godliness, is wealth, is material wealth, the wealth of the world. Um, I did a search this week for wealthy pastors or richest pastors. And it was interesting. And what you, you find out, the numbers vary on the websites you go to. But guys, here in the United States, we've got pastors who... I'm talking personal wealth here. I'm not talking about ministry dollars. Personal wealth. Worth tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Pastors here in the United States. And it's not just here, it's in Africa as well, if you can believe it. One of the wealthiest guys is an African pastor, built a church that seats 50,000 people. These guys are driving, um, what's the British, the big Rolls Royce and some Bentleys, and they're living in huge mansions, they're flying private jets. For them, godliness is about what I can get. So there are pastors. These guys are alive and well today. And they're using God. They're using God's name. They're using the gospel. They're using their brothers and sisters in the faith to get stuff. And Paul says they've lost their mind. And they've lost their way. And they are plunging into destruction. Listen to Philip Towner's description of godliness in this context. His commentary on 1 Timothy He says, godliness is not about acquiring better and more material things. It is instead an active life of faith, a living out of covenant faithfulness in relation to God that finds sufficiency and contentment in Christ alone, whatever one's outward circumstances. Now that's it. They've confused godliness. This is it. It's about that relationship with the Lord and ultimately understanding that our wealth is in Christ Himself. So to the leaders, that's the thing. They're trying to make money from God and the church so they have a different kind of lifestyle to feed their ego, whatever. 
Paul's going to shift gears here as we go down to verse 17. He's now addressing people who have wealth. These aren't guys that are trying to make it. They have it. And so he's telling them, because of the gospel, because of our relationship with God, in the household of faith, this is what God says to those who have wealth, how to think of it, how to use it. Verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in Ephesus, there were wealthy Christians, just as there are wealthy Christians in the household of faith today. Statistically, we'd still say they're the minority, not the norm, because Paul's told us elsewhere that God chooses the poor of this world to become rich in Christ. But there are folks with money then and now, and this is what Paul says, some don'ts and some do's relative to the wealth they have. You remember there were a list of do's and don'ts with widows and with older brothers, and now he says the same thing about those who were blessed with financial wealth. First he says, don't be proud. Don't be proud. Uh, Guys, if we define ourselves or our value or our importance based on wealth, we are proud. And listen, this cuts both ways. If I have a little money and think I'm less valuable, I'm, I'm using the same coinage. I'm using the same value scale. So I'm poor and I say, well, I'm not that important because of money. The rich person says, well, I'm more important because of money. Money becomes the valuation by which we determine, relative to ourselves or to others, how important am I? How valuable am I? Paul says, don't be proud. In fact, when James takes this up in James chapter 2, you remember there, he says, if a wealthy man comes into your church and you treat him well, and a poor man comes to your church and you treat him differently because he's poor, not as well, James says, you've made a distinction that's evil. You're judging the way the world judges instead of the way God our Father and Christ our Savior judges. Can you imagine if I said to one of my daughters, I love you more than your sister because you make more money than your sister does? be like what are you talking about it's a relationship my dad loves me i love all my girls equally it's not dependent but this is what's going on when i attach pride to finances i'm determining value based on the way the world does not on the way our father does certainly not on the way christ our savior does don't be proud and he says don't trust in your wealth does anybody else here suffer about a a 30 to 40 percent loss in their retirement accounts about five to six or seven years ago what if i if i'm planning on the use of that money what happens to my plans when the market drops 30 to 40 percent my hopes are gone if i set my hopes on the money paul says you're in a shaky deal you imagine all the people that gave money to bernie madoff thinking i'm making a fortune and lost it all uh, in Eric Metaxas's book on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he tells this story. Bonhoeffer's dad was the best-known psychiatrist in Germany. He was the upper echelons. Their family had a long, rich history in Germany. 
So he's finished his career. This is right before World War II. He takes his retirement, his life savings, his retirement from all those decades, four decades or more, and he takes all that money and he goes out and buys a picnic lunch for his family because that's what the mark was worth at that point. If his hopes were set on the wealth of money, he was out of luck. And Paul says, Scripture says, we're fools if we set our hope on money. Think of it this way. If I give my child uh, their allowance, my child sees that $5 bill or 10 or 20 or whatever it is, from my hand to their hand, the money came from dad. It's not money that came out of the air. They didn't dig it up. They didn't find it. Their hope isn't on the money. It's on dad, dad who gave it. So Paul says, don't put your hope in money. Do, this is the first of the three do's, do trust God who's the ultimate provider. He's the one providing anyway. God's the one that's giving us the stuff to enjoy. Don't trust the stuff. Trust the God who gives it. Do good by being rich in good works and always ready to share. If God gives us wealth and and by standards of the world and history, people in the United States, we're almost all wealthy. Compared to the world, compared to history, all of us are wealthy. Uh, We're stewards of that wealth. And we'll give an account for the wealth that came through our fingers in our time on the earth. And the question will be from God, did you use that wealth that I entrusted to you the way I wanted you to? And so these are the ways Paul's saying, this is how God wants us to use that wealth. And one of the things is, be rich in good works, ready to share with others. Remember that all of this is the gospel is meant to impact and inform the way we live life. And this is one of those ways. So that with our wealth, we're meant to be rich in good works. We're meant to be generous and ready to share. That's the way the wealthy, and all, that's all of us, are meant to treat wealth. And the last is, by doing that, we store up treasure in heaven. You know, because money's not the issue, right? It's the love of money. Stuff's not the issue. The stuff is not the problem. We're the problem. So, if my heart is adjusted, if God is my God, not money, if money is stuff that I steward for God's honor and glory and to bless brothers and sisters in the faith or help others who haven't heard the gospel yet, then God's free to bless with money, right? Or stuff, because I'll use it in a way that glorifies Him. There's a guy that's not as well known today that's a, an incredible example, just phenomenal example, of a guy who made tons and tons of money. And it didn't change him. And he used it for God's glory. R.G. Letourneau, there's a university that has his name. There's a retreat center in the Northeast United States from his largesse. He was uh, born in a Christian home, 1888, grew up, left home early. I think he was 14, became a Christian at 16. He bummed around the country a little bit. He went from one kind of work to another, but he was always learning. He got into a welding apprenticeship in one place and World War I came along and he couldn't go in because of some physical handicap. And so he was, he was involved in manufacturing one thing or another. Well, anyway, this guy's got a gift. And so, compressed, long story short, R.G. Letourneau ends up being this genius on heavy equipment and on earth-moving machinery. So he has over 300 patents. He had manufacturing plants on four continents. In World War II, it was estimated that 70% of the heavy equipment, and especially the earth-moving equipment that was being used, was his stuff, 70%. 
Can you imagine? He was making a lot of money. In the 30s, <clears throat> when their wealth started coming in, he and his wife had a conversation. And this was the deal they struck with God. They said, we're going to give 90% of our wealth away and we'll live on 10%. We'll give 90% away. In fact, he said this, it's not how much of my money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. He understood, I'm a steward. It's all God's. How does God want me to use this? Now, the numbers don't, they don't mean as much, and I didn't try and grade these for inflation. But an example of their giving, 1959, their foundation had given away $10 million that year. There was another $40 million in the foundation. So 1959, he had, his foundation, which was only one place that his money went, was worth over $50 million. He was giving his money away. He was supporting missions. He was doing the kinds of things Paul says here. He was being rich in good works. Listen to this from uh, Luke 12. So Paul didn't tell, Paul doesn't tell the folks with money, get rid of your money, right? But he says, but this is how you're to think about it. This is how you use it. In Luke 12, Jesus has a discussion with his disciples. It's a little different take, but it has to do with this freedom to give away. So he says there to his disciples, don't seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink. Don't be worried. For the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father knows you need them. The pagans who don't know God, they worry about money and stuff. You do know God. Why would you worry about stuff? Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. He'll take care of you. You put God in his things first. He's committed to providing for you. And then he says this, fear not, little flock. He's talking to his disciples. Remember, these guys are fishermen who aren't fishing. They're ex-tax collectors. They're kind of on the dole walking around Israel. They're being supported by women. Luke's Gospel tells us also. They're unimportant in the life of Israel at this point. They don't lead the temple. They don't lead the synagogues. They're not part of the Roman power. So Jesus calls them little flock. Just this little group in this little corner of the Roman Empire. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you. So what's the Father's good pleasure to give them? Is it, uh, is it a dime? Is it a quarter? Is it a dollar? How, how generous is their Father? It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You get, you followers of Jesus, you get everything. You get the kingdom. You know, when you talk about being sons and daughters of God... What the Father has, the children get. When you talk about being co-heirs with Christ, what does Jesus get related to His Father? Everything. And what do they get? What do we get? We get everything. That's the perspective. Don't worry, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you everything. Because that's the case, He says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is too. If God is our treasure, we're free to give away the stuff. If the stuff is our treasure, we're not. If God's our treasure and we're giving away the stuff, Jesus says we are in fact laying up treasures in heaven. We're not, we're not losing anything, we're gaining. Your study sheet lists 2 Corinthians, a passage you can look at later on giving. But one of the ways to ask yourself, where is my heart in all this? So I may say I'm not wealthy. Uh, and, and I'm not 
necessarily thinking that I got to be a millionaire to be happy, so maybe I'm okay. Let me just ask you this. How easy and how generous is it for us to give our wealth away? How easy and how generous are we in giving our wealth away? You know, the statistics that come up, they come around semi-regularly related to evangelical giving tends to be around 3 to 4 or 5% which means that the people that, they, that say they believe in God, Jesus is our Savior, God is our Father, we believe this book that we can afford to be generous because God our Father is committed to our needs, give away less than 5% of their income. Does that sound like a contradiction? It does to me. Sounds like a contradiction. We can afford to be generous if we believe God and believe the Word. So when we sit down and give... Do we give? One, do we give? Maybe. Two, do we give generously? And when we give generously, is there a sense of joy? See, all these things are pretty good indicators of where our heart's at. I might say, I know God wants me to give, so I give. But in my heart, I'm holding on with everything I've got. Because I really don't believe yet. I really don't know that no, God's absolutely committed. I don't have to hold on to a thing. My Father's good for whatever we need. Do I give? Do I give generously? Do I give joyfully? Those are pretty good indications of where our heart's at. So guys, for you and me today, as you sit there today, as you think about yourself, your circumstances, your life, how much does it take to be content? Are we content right now? How much does it take? Paul answered that in verse 8. If we have food and covering, we're to be content. If we have food and covering, we're to be content. You know, in reference to the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. If we have the needs for today met, we have enough to be content. I'll bet there's no one here who won't eat today, doesn't have clothes on their back, or a roof over their head. So by this formula, we're told we should be content today with our circumstances. Listen to this from Hebrews 13.5. State a little differently, a little more pointedly. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for He, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, can you imagine this? If God were visible and were walking with us, and we said, uh, Lord, I really need those other things. I'm not content because I need that much money or those other things, nicer house, bigger car, whatever. What we're saying to God is, God, you're not enough. God says, I'm always with you. And we say, that's nice, but I need that too. We're telling God, Lord, it's nice that you're with us, but you're not enough. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. And the other thing is, before we wind down, verse 17, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. When we say all this, uh, just think again. If God's giving us the whole kingdom, this goes right back to Romans 8. If God didn't withhold His Son for us, from us, would He withhold anything else that was good? If He gave His richest treasure, His Son, to gain relationship with us through salvation, He wouldn't hold anything back. Everything else is a lesser treasure. God gives us everything because He wants to bless us. He gives it them to enjoy those things. He's not holding out on us. He's giving us. Guys, to close, I'm going to read some scriptures. And you can close your eyes if you want. I just want you to think about 
the language of wealth and the direction that it's pointed in these texts. At the end of the day, the stuff is not our wealth. God our Father is our wealth. Christ our Savior is our wealth. There's no one who has Christ who is poor. If we have Christ, we have everything. Listen to these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which He has promised to those who love Him. Guys, the bad news of the Gospel is that we are spiritual paupers. We are without God and without hope. And the good news of the Gospel is that through Christ, through His substitutionary death and resurrection, we who were poor, who were outsiders, have been adopted into God's family and given the wealth of the world. No Christian, no one who has Christ is poor. Father, would you help us to have your valuation system? Father, would you help us to see you clearly enough that you fill our imaginations, our desires, and our hopes? Lord Jesus, would you help us to take you in so fully that nothing else compares with knowing you? Lord, would you help us repent of any idolatry towards money and the things of this world? 
that in comparison to you, as Paul said, they are rubbish, that we embrace you and having you have all. In Jesus' name, amen.